Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. All of us, as we grow up, have to negotiate and renegotiate our changing relationship with our parents as we age. The child-parent relationship grows and matures as we go through the seasons of life. And Tammy Martin learned that in some significant ways, especially when, as an adult, she moved right next door to her parents. But in 2009, a catastrophic event changed her family and her life forever. Listen as she shares with us how what seemed to be the worst thing that could ever happen to a family actually turned out to be a gift in many important ways in Tammy's life. And Tammy, we're so grateful that you're here. And maybe it would make an awful lot of sense for us to start at the very beginning. Why don't you start by telling us about your childhood, about your growing up, and your sister and your parents? Okay, so I was born in Bristol, Connecticut, and lived there um, up until I was almost eight years old. I lived mostly with my grandmother and grandfather at that time. My parents were very young parents. They traveled and did work in different areas. Um, so I lived with my grandma and grandpa, and my grandfather ended up dying very unexpectedly when I was four. He had um, actually come to pick my grandmother and I up at church and fell and broke his leg and the day before Christmas, he ended up, when he sat down, it released a blood clot, and he died instantly. Oh. Uh, I didn't really know my grandmother as much at that point. I was so attached to my grandfather. Mm. But in the months after that, my grandmother and I just became inseparable. My sister lived with us, too, at that time. Um, but after my grandfather had passed away, my parents came back and they took my sister with them on their travels. I did not want to go. I was very attached to my grandmother mm. and they let me stay. And I was very thankful for that. Uh. Um, so we lived in Connecticut, just my grandmother and I, uh, by ourselves mostly for the next couple of years. And then right before I turned eight, my parents decided that they wanted to be back into our lives full time. They had, you know, established themselves more and had grown, and they decided we were going to all move to New York yeah. together as one family unit. My, so, what a change. What a change. And your grandmother was included in that. My grandmother was included. My grandmother was always the matriarch of the family, which in adult years, I kind of earned that as, you know, I took over. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but she lived, we all lived with her. It was really her house. Um, and we moved to Hannah Croy, New York, right next door to where I live now. And then everybody lived together, which was a little different. It, there were some growing pains for certain. Mm. I was not very close with either of my parents. They were very different from me. Mm. I was, I was the odd one out. I was definitely different. They were very, um, 
they enjoyed the rural life, and we grew up. They had a horse farm when we moved to New York. They had started a horse farm, and my mom trained dogs and did horseback riding lessons. And I was more of a, a girly girl. So uh. I'm not going to lie. I would wear my white sandals out to the horse barn. <laughs> so I was definitely a little bit different. But... You know, we didn't, so we didn't have a close relationship, but I already had that with my grandmother. And so I always felt like the relationship of a mother and daughter would be ideal, would be comparative to what my grandmother and I had, ideally. Mm. Oh, so um, those were probably my younger years. As I got older in my teens, both of my parents were very strict. Definitely more strict than most parents, I ah. would say. I and I think I was pretty well behaved, although I did have I like to mouth off sometimes. Mm. I was I'm one of those people that I don't care who you are. If if I know that I'm right in my heart, you're not going to change it, and I'm gonna stand up for what I believe. Mm. And so you know, not all parents want to deal with that. And I'm sure as a teenager, I was not as tactful as mm. I should have been. Sure. <laughs> you know, and my parents were both just very strict disciplinarians, and I did leave home at 15. Um, after being in a very, very awful fight with my father, and it did turn physical mm. on both parts, which I'm not proud of, but I've grown and learned from that, and so I'm okay with it. You know, it's it's in the past, and so after mm. I was moved out, I didn't really see them much, you know, here and there. We, we weren't estranged. We just didn't develop a close relationship. And you, he was, like, your parents were at your wedding. Your dad walked you down the aisle. He did. Yeah, he did. so you, not estrangement, but, uh, but a little bit of distance. Right. So what wound up causing you to move right next door? I adored my grandmother with all of my heart. Mm. And I wanted her to live with us. She wasn't very happy living with my parents. Her and my father didn't get along very Mm. well. Mm. And I just, I couldn't stand her not being near me. And so we had talked about it and decided that when my husband got out of the Marine Corps that We were going to move back to New York, and my grandmother was going to help us. She would sell us her property at a reasonable cost. We would then subdivide it so that her daughter could live right next door to her because she adored her daughter Mm. and have her own space in my home. So that is how we decided. And I am one of those people that I'm pretty easy to get along with. I kind of go with the flow. I'm very flexible as far as that goes. So, you know, I was like, we can make it work. I don't have to live with them. It's fine. I, you know, mm-hmm. it'll be okay. Good. You know, um, it was a different story. My husband and father did not get along as well because my husband was new coming onto the property and my father had been there so felt more entitled to it so Mm. 
there are growing pains as well, but for the most part, they figured it out eventually. And you... <laughs> but not after everything happened in our lives. Yes. So not until after the main event of, you know, how the pivotal point in our lives. And it sounds to me like the pivotal point began when you had your own health crisis. In September of 2009, you had some symptoms that led to you needing to have a hysterectomy. And your encounter with your mother around the time of that was really remarkable. Can you talk to us about that? I can. So when I was growing up, you know, my grandmother always told me how much she loved me, and I always told her how much I loved her. And my father occasionally would tell us, us meaning my sister and I, how much he loved us. Not all the time, but he would say it, and we knew it. But my mother had never, ever in my entire life told me that she loved me. Mm. Night before my surgery, we were talking on the phone, as we often did, because she would call over to talk to my grandmother, or ask if I had a stick of butter to borrow, or whatever, you know, as neighbors and relatives do. And when she went to get off of the phone, she said, okay, good night, I love you. Mm. And I said, I love you, and I hung up. But in my mind, I kind of brushed it off like, oh, she must have thought she was talking to somebody else. I know in my life, and maybe in yours, where there's been somebody who has accidentally said I love you on the end of a phone conversation. <laughs> yes, that can happen. It can. That happened to me before. And so I just thought it was a mistake yeah. because I had never heard it before. And... We weren't having some deep conversation or anything, so I just let it go as she made a mistake. She always said that when she hung up the phone to my dad, so she just made a mistake. Ah. So the next morning, I was getting ready for my surgery, getting ready to leave, and my mother had come over to talk to her mother, my grandmother, who was living with me. And when I went to leave... She actually stood up and, and she very awkwardly patted my shoulder and she's like, well, good luck. Don't worry. It will be okay. I love you. Wow. And I was like, oh, I, I love you too. And then I went to leave and my husband, this poor man, I mm. just burst into tears as soon as I got into the car. And I cried hysterically for the entire ride up to Albany Med. Mm. Like, like a 40 minute drive, I cried hysterically. I was petrified in my heart. It was, I didn't cry because I heard the words I'd never heard. I cried because I thought she'd had a premonition and that she thought I was going to die. Oh. So I was petrified. It was just the most petrifying thing. And I was just so scared. And so when I woke up from surgery, and of course surgery was postponed like five hours because they were running behind. So oh. I had a lot to think about it. Oh, boy. <laughs> when I finally... 
finally woke up from surgery, I was just so happy to be alive. I just was... I mean, I felt no pain. I felt amazing. I just felt like I had been rebirthed. I was so happy to be alive. Mm. So, you know, I had had that happen. And when I came home from the hospital the next morning, I just felt very hopeful and renewed. Like, okay, you know what? It's been a long time coming, but I've been the good daughter. I've hosted every holiday gathering. I've made sure I never missed an anniversary or a birthday. I've always made sure that I did everything that was expected of me. And Mm. they get it. She sees it. She knows it. And I wasn't just a mistake that she had when she was too young and Mm. wanted So I was very hopeful for a new beginning. Wow. Wow. And you had that, you had that feeling as you were recovering. And I mean, the surgery that you had requires time to reacclimate to life. That's a, that's a pretty serious thing. And so it's remarkable to me that, am I right? You only had about three weeks before the next incredible challenge hit. That is correct. And that was the day my life changed forever. And every single thing that has happened in my life is referred to as before the accident or after the accident. Mm. It is one pivotal moment in my life. My, oh my. So I, our listeners, I think, you know, it's funny when you hear someone say what you just said, we are girding ourselves. This is a big deal. And for you to share this with us is very very generous of you uh, because obviously it, this is like you said a pivot point it was pivotal in your life it's this is october 20th 2009 what what happened my mother was on her way to work she worked part time at a florist shop in albany And she had left our house and was driving down our road about two miles away from our house. And there is an area that has a Y in the road where it merges. So she was heading straight down and had the right of way. And a woman was coming up the road from the other direction and failed to yield. And there was a head-on collision between the two. Oh, my. Uh, So both cars were totaled. My mother was in pain, but she did not want to take an ambulance. She was adamant. They tried to force her to take an ambulance, and she was absolutely adamant. I don't need an ambulance. I will go to the doctors. My husband will take me. And that's what they did. My dad promised he would take her straight to the doctors, and he did. And they discovered she had broken her leg, Mm. which had set her up for an appointment the following day up at the Bone and Joint Center. They were going to set her leg. And she had also received a huge bruise the entire length of her seatbelt, about five inches in diameter, that just was black it was absolutely black Mm. within like an hour of her accident 
So, but, and she said it hurt, but she was fine. She was a little bit upset that the broken leg was going to alter her next few weeks of what she had scheduled. And it was an inconvenience, you know. She sounds Um, like a tough woman, an accident that serious. And she doesn't, she has a broken leg, but it, that doesn't make her want to take an ambulance. Forget that. She's not spending the money on an ambulance. It was just not going to happen. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, she went, like I said, they went to the doctors and they set up an appointment for the next day. And she kept, when she came home, she wasn't feeling really good. But, I mean, you've been through such a traumatic car accident. It's like, okay, well, I'm not feeling that great. So... That's to be expected. Every bone in my body is achy, and you know mm. you were around, and and so and you're stressed. So you know you're you're not feeling that good. So we didn't really think much about it. I didn't think much about it at all. You know, I actually had arrived at the scene of the accident because I had left for work maybe like five minutes after she did. So I was one of the first people to see the accident, and it was. Uh, both cars completely total. Mm. I mean, you know, head on. So I was surprised she was even, you know, feeling decent at all, but, you mm. know, she didn't want to do anything else. And so that was her prerogative, and that's the way she always was. So mm. was not a wimp in any way, shape, or form. She didn't no even way. like to take Tylenol. She didn't like to take any medications at all, not even Tylenol. Wow. So I knew going in an ambulance was going to be a big stretch. <laughs> so wow. the next day, um, so the next day they decided, you know, they had to go up to the bone and joint center. They were going to get her legs back. Mm. She couldn't, you know, she was not supposed to put any weight on it. And she was not having a good time with the crutches. She hated them. Um, but my dad took her up to the bone and jo- joint center and so, you know, I was just like, okay, keep me posted, you know, when you get back, we'll see what's going on. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, the worst part of this entire situation is that she's going to be miserable because she has a cast on for a few weeks. Mm. And so my dad and mom left the hospital, left the bone and joint center. And my dad looked over like three or four minutes later, maybe five minutes later, he was talking to her and she didn't respond and he looked over and she was slumped against the door Mm. and unresponsive. And so my dad called me immediately and he was like, I don't know what to do. And I said, we'll drive to Albany Med. I'm like, you're right there. You were up that way. You, because he said, I don't know. Do I go to our doctor? I'm like, no, just go to the hospital. Right. Immediately. <laughs> because it was so crazy. And, you know, he just it was beside himself. Aww. So I was like, okay, you know, drive to the hospital. Keep me posted. And it was my day off, and I was thinking to myself, oh, I, should, I don't know, should I, go, should I go meet them there? Let me see what they have to say. You know, I'll give it a little while, and, and then I'll go and see. Mm. And so maybe like an hour later, my dad called me and said, oh, your mother had a stroke, a blood clot broke loose, but they gave her 
a drug. It's called the Miracle Clot Buster, and it works on most people, and she seems to be getting better. Mm. They had given her a drug called PPA, which is a tissue plasminogen activator, and it breaks up your clots, and it for most people who have a stroke, it reverses the symptoms. Amazing. It has 94% success rate. So, you know, it, it's good for most people. And that's why they tell you if you suspect you've had a stroke to get to the hospital within two or three hours because they can administer it. But if there's only a small window that they can do so. At 94%, you almost don't worry about the results. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? 94% right, of people... Yeah. And, you know, um, they had asked my dad, you know, if they could do that. And he was like, yes, please do that. And she started to recover. And so after I found out that she'd had a stroke, I knew it was a little bit more serious. And I went up to the hospital and I met them there. And my mom had given me a couple um, phone numbers I had to call. She had, she she did uh, dog training lessons for many, many years, and she showed dogs as a professional dog handler. So that was her world, and she loved her dogs. And so she had a couple of appointments coming up, and she had given me the phone numbers that she had to cancel because of this whole darn leg-breaking thing, and mm. now this accident, and, you know, so mm. I was like, okay, and I got down the numbers, and... She wouldn't let me hold her purse. I was like, let me hold your purse for you. She was like, she seemed to be struggling with it. All of her um, left side, I think, hadn't come back all the way at that point. Mm. So she had been struggling with it a little bit. But I was like, no, no, let me hold it. And she's like, no, you don't need to hold my purse. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, that was always her demeanor. Strong woman. I was like, okay. And, you know, the nurses and doctors were coming in. We were still down in the emergency room section. And they were coming in and they were like, you know, okay, they're taking tests and doing things and everything looked great. And standard protocol would be to keep her overnight for observation in the neuroscience unit just to be able to do scans if they needed to or whatever. So um, my dad had been with her all day and they had animals at home. They had dogs and I think they might have even had a couple horses that were my sisters but were still on this property I can't remember now um but they hadn't been out all day so I told my dad I would sit with my mom while she was waiting to get to her room and you could run home and go you know go run home and take out the dogs and do what you got to do and you know and then you can come back up and by then she'll be situated and whatnot So he went home, and I was waiting, and then they brought us upstairs, her separately from me, to the neuroscience unit, and they gave me this little waiting area, and they're like, we'll be out for you shortly. So that was like right around 5 o'clock at night, and I had, at 6 o'clock, I rang on the doorbell, and they said, well, we'll be out shortly, and that's. Seven o'clock, I rang on the doorbell, and they said, just give us a little bit. And when my dad got back at 20 after 7, he was not as patient as I was. Mm. 
He was, he started knocking on the door at relentlessly because at that point, I think we both felt something happened. So he was like at the door and he was knocking and all of a sudden this entire team of medical professionals came racing through the door with a gurney in between them and it was my mom laying on the bed and she was unconscious and they had already shaved half of her head and they went flying by us and wouldn't stop and wouldn't let us go near her and there was one poor guy that stopped and he must have I can only imagine drawn the short straw to tell us what had happened and he told us that my mother had an adverse reaction to the TPA the miracle cluster drugs and that 94% of the people don't have a reaction, but for the 6% that do, including my mom, it can be catastrophic. And mm. she ended up having a blood clot go to the brain. And they told us that they were rushing her in for emergency surgery and that she had less than a 10% chance of surviving this surgery and that if she survived it, they did not know what type of deficits she would have, but that it was our only hope at all. Are, Tammy, are you the kind of person who takes that all in, in the moment and has a reaction in the moment, or are you someone who has a delayed reaction? How did you respond to that? I am one of those people that is really good under stress and I take control of a situation and I will delegate what needs to be done as I'm processing it. Uh. I, I'm a very logical thinker, so my mind always processes things logically as to what needs to happen next and... I'm one of those people who I take charge. I'm a take charge kind of person in situations like that. Mm. So it's very hard when you are left so vulnerable and you have zero control of a situation. Oh, absolutely. And so they rush her in. What, what are you and your dad doing during that time? A lot of phone calls to be made. Um, and first, before I fall apart, I make the phone calls. Mm. And then when the waiting goes from a half hour to multiple hours, you start to break down. Mm. And you try to be strong. Well, I tried to be strong for my dad because he seemed to be taking it worse than I was. And I was just trying to process what this was going to mean. Mm. I think I just assumed she was going to die that night. Oh. I just assumed that when they say you have less than a 10% chance of survival and... 
she was already so bad, I just assumed that it was that that was it, that it was done. Were you angry that the accident had happened and she seemed to get a pass? Did Was there a part of you that said some version of, God, how could you spare her from the accident and then have this happen? No, I was... I don't think I was ever angry. I mm. was so sad. Mm. And I was so... I was scared for me, and I was scared for her. I was very sad, and I felt like I had just gotten so close to a different relationship, and now it was on hold. Mm. And I didn't, you know, once she survived the surgery, which she was alive after the surgery, so that's considered surviving it. I think then I just was trying to focus on, okay, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And then maybe like three days in, I started to realize what was going on. When my mom came out of surgery, she never woke up. Mm. Well, not right away. She was actually in a coma, not medically induced, for 43 days. Wow. So she did not wake up during that time. For the first 10 days, maybe, every minute was touch and go. Mm. Every single minute, they could not tell you if she was going to live. Mm. And I lived in the hospital. There was a waiting room there, and I just lived in it. I had a friend who lived not far from there, and I would run over to her house and take a shower and go right back to the hospital. Um, you just don't know. You, you don't, your time is standing still, and... Every time you would see her, and you were only allowed to see her for a little bit here and there, it, you know, there was like a time schedule of, okay, well, she can have visitors for 10 minutes now, and you can't have more than two people, and, you know, because she was in the neuroscience unit, and, you know, the neuroscience ICU, so it was very, very monitored, and she was, when you when I went in to see her the first time, after her surgery, she was black and blue all over, really. You know, other bruises had formed from the car accident, but the seatbelt bruise was just absolutely devastating. And that does turn out to be where the blood clot broke from oh. and caused the bleed out to the brain, the stroke, and all of that. Wow. So, um,. You know, looking at her, she kept spiking a very high temperature. So they had her actually laying on a bed of ice and to keep her core temperature down. So she was laying on ice and she, you know, was probably one of the most modest people I've ever met in my life. Mm. I never, ever even saw her in her underwear when I was growing up. Mm. She was extremely modest. 
she just never she never exposed herself. I never even saw her in a bathing suit, not once. Mm. Um, just very, very modest. So then to all of a sudden see her laying like that and just she had wires attached to everything and she was on a machine that she was on life support so you know she had a machine breathing for her and she had all of these tubes that were checking neurological responses and she had half of her head shaved Mm. and the surgery because she ended up with so much swelling around her brain when they went in and did brain surgery, they removed part of her brain and they took half of her skull off, the the actual skull bone cap. It's called a skull cap. And they took that off and then they sewed the flap of skin back over the brain to give it more space to swell. So it was so swollen on her one side that it looked like Squidward from Spongebob. It had that really bulbous, wide, that wideness to it that was just awful to look at. It just bulged right over in this, it was so swollen that it just bulged and hung over the top of her ear. Oh dear. And out just several inches past her ear. And, you know, my mother was she loved her long hair. She always wore her hair long. It was this beautiful silver color, and she wouldn't ever color it. She went prematurely gray in her 20s. She would never color her hair. It was always silver, and she was always long, and she always used to cut her own bangs uneven and look <laughs> awful. <laughs> I always used to tease her and say, Mom, you don't know a good hairdresser? Yeah, which for those of you who don't like, know, that is Tammy's profession. I do it myself. That's and I right. Say, Mom, do you know all these people at church think that that's what I'm doing to hair? <laughs> and she would be like, no, they don't. And I'm like, oh. I would beg her to, to trim her hair so that it would look better. So her hair was everything to her. And to see it was all cut off on the one side, just shaved down to scalp, oh. was so hard to see mm. because they took away all of my mom's identity. Mm. This accident, not they, the accident took away all of my mom's dignity, all of her identity. It was like looking at a complete stranger. Mm. Then you faced, you faced another impossible moment, which helps us to understand why you say everything was before the accident or after the accident, because you had to try to figure out what would mom's wishes be and what are God's wishes? Well, my mother had never done a living will or a health care proxy. And without those things, it's very hard to know exactly what somebody wants mm. if they are ever in this predicament. Mm. I mean, we all think we're going to live until we die, but not suffer in between. Right. We don't think we're going to be incapacitated and in a coma with half of our skull off and 
with no way of communicating and no way of doing anything and not being able to scratch your own nose or anything. Mm. But the reality is that these things happen. But she had been in a coma about two weeks and they had started talking that if she didn't wake up soon within the next couple of days, that they were going to have to do something called trach and peg, which is a feeding tube that's a little bit more permanent and a breathing tube that is more permanent as well because of the long-term use of it. The, the other things that they had were short-term and they could cause other infections. Mm. And he was going to be in a coma indefinitely then this is what we needed to do because she could live for years like that Mm. and she couldn't get an infection. So we had talked with a lot of the nurses and doctors there and her attending physician, along with her staff nurses that were there, along with us, had talked quite a bit and had decided that we were going to take her off of life support, that she would never, ever want to live like that, considering how she hated to ever even take a Tylenol, and she was extremely modest, and she was an extremely personal person, and she was only happy when she was outside with her dogs and horses, either riding horseback or playing with her dogs, that... She would not want to live like that. Mm. And two weeks might not seem like much to somebody who's just hearing me talk of this, but two weeks when you are in the hospital every day for every hour and you are watching paint dry and there are no changes at all in two weeks. When you say that, I think everyone who's had to endure a two-week quarantine for coronavirus and found it really difficult has a whole new perspective of what two weeks really feels like when it's at its most difficult. It was absolutely the longest two weeks of my life. Mm. So knowing all of this, we had talked with her medical professionals and we had decided on a day to take her off of life support. Oh, what a hard thing for a family to do. What a hard thing. It was absolutely one of the most difficult decisions to make. And when I tell you it was not done lightly, it was not a decision that you know, didn't go with hours and hours of thought and talking and praying. And it took just so much to come to that decision. And I was so scared and so sad. And I didn't know if it was even allowed in the Catholic religion. I just didn't even know if it was okay. I didn't know if I was going to go to hell because... I said, okay, let's do this. Mm. I didn't know. um, I really didn't know what I was doing. I I, I had so much guilt over it, and I wasn't really certain. 
I just know she didn't want to live like that. Right. So I wasn't at peace with my decision, but I felt like it was the responsible choice to make. So that being said, we set up the date and we had, you know, everybody come in and say goodbye. And I have a, a good, my, my father worked for Kenwood Convent, um, the um, retirement nursing home for the nuns yes. up in Albany. And he worked there and he had a lot of wonderful friends that were nuns and we had had a lovely nun come in and and do a beautiful song and little prayer ceremony and um we were ready that we had had everybody in we were ready the nurses had brought in chairs for us to sit all the way around her there was like i don't know maybe nine or ten of us this was it this was going to be absolutely the end and literally the head of the neuroscience came in last minute and she said, what are you doing? You can't do this. You're being selfish. I will take you to court if you take her off of life support because she's going to be up and running around next year. Oh, and this is the first you've heard any of this. Yes. This violates everything that you were told. Everything that we were told by every doctor and every nurse who had seen her. Do you? Does it make any sense to you why the neuroscientist, the neurosurgeon rather, spoke in such a strong and shaming way, assuming that you were just very excited to do this? It sounds almost like she thought she was speaking to a callous bunch of gold diggers rather than a grieving family. I don't want to speculate. I definitely, we definitely all felt very bullied by her. Yo. And I know that um, ever since that, we still refer to her as Mary Poppins because she came in and was like, no, you're all wrong. She's going to be up running around. And the truth of the matter is, when my mother finally did pass away, we had an autopsy done, and the brain surgery that they had done with the amount of brain tissue that they had removed had left her completely incapable of ever being up and moving around again. Right. right. Did not know that at the time. You know, hindsight is everything, but it was an extremely conflicting time for me because then I had already had that good Catholic guilt because I didn't know if it was even okay. And then I had that guilt of, oh my God, am I being selfish? God, I'm not trying to be. And I was overwhelmed. But then there was that hope too, like, wow, oh my gosh, look at what we almost did. This is crazy. We wanted to believe so badly yes. that she was going to be better. Yes. I can't imagine. Um, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And that's why I'm talking to you tonight. Mm. And a little bit further down the road, I think, you know, it'll be a lot more clear, I guess, why it happened. And you're um, willing, you're willing to wait to find out you don't need to know now. 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, so then life changed again, and um, but she didn't change at that point. She was still in a coma, and now we were like, oh, okay, this might be different. We had some of the staff tell us that they thought she was wrong. We had some of the staff that was very indifferent about it. We did not seem to have any staff that supported her, but I felt like, well, hey, she is the head, so that's got to be something. You know, there's a reason she's at the top. Let's see. And I started to pray. I mean, I always prayed through the whole thing, but I didn't really ever know what I was praying for. Ah. I was praying for an end, not necessarily of her life, but of this situation. And I felt like I didn't know whether to pray for her to just pass and be with her mother who had passed on the year before her my grandmother and I, whom mm. I was still grieving from. Mm. And I didn't know if I was praying for her to get better. I just kept praying for God's will be done. I just, it was my mantra. It's what I said constantly. God's will be done. God's will be done. Whatever he meant to happen needed to happen whether it was to get her up and running around or if it was to let her go. Mm. All I prayed for. And it was a journey. It was a journey that ended up lasting eight and a half months. And there was a lot along the way. She went to rehab while she was still in a coma. And she didn't really get anything accomplished there except for they did end up being able to get her trach back out and she started breathing on her own. So although that seems not like a lot, I mean, it was something and we were very happy for that. It gave us a little bit of hope. Yes. He, um, was she was able to come home. She started to wake up in the beginning of December. She started to become a little bit more alert. But then she started having some very bad seizures from the traumatic brain injury. So she was on a lot of medications that really kind of kept her a little bit more subdued. But they had told us that we could take her home for a visit for the holidays towards the end of December. That sure seems ambitious hearing what you're describing. Yes. Yes, it was. But I have always had such a, a feeling of the importance of family and trying to make sure that they had everything that they wanted or needed and all of my family members that I wanted her to be home and enjoy her favorite holiday Christmas and be with her family. So Mm. 
in the beginning of December when she started waking up and they told us that, yes, we could still take her home for a visit. My dad went out and purchased um, a wheelchair van with a lift that he could, that we could put her in the wheelchair in the van and be able to transport her to our house. And then they told us, well, you're also going to need a Hoyer lift because you can't stay in one position for that long. So we went out and bought a Hoyer lift to put in my house as well. And then we had to go and get ramps to be able to get a wheelchair in the house. So we did a lot of planning and we ended up with everything we needed, including transfer boards and, and everything we needed. And I scheduled an open house at my house for her visit. So anybody who wanted to come and visit her could come and say hi and visit and see how she was doing. She wasn't talking at that point, she could whisper a few words, um, so we really still didn't know what was going to be the end all, like how good she was going to get, how many, what there were going to be for deficits. We still didn't know because she hadn't been awake that long. Hmm. We got everything together. We, you know, went up there, drove up, and you know, drove her down here for. It took an hour almost to get here. I might have even taken longer because I don't think we drove very fast. I think I was like in the back holding the wheelchair, watching every bump. And my dad was in the front and he was driving very, very slow, afraid to go around any curves because she still doesn't have her skull cap on. So her brain is just skin away from damage. Mm. So, you know, we had to be very, very careful. She did have a helmet on, but, um, it was very scary to take her here, and but we did, so we got her down here. We, she was only allowed to be gone for four hours, and it takes an hour to get to our house. She was here for not quite two hours because we were afraid that it would take too long to get her loaded back up, and so we did all of that, and that was her only visit that she had home. Oh, but, the Hoyer lift and the van. And the ramps. And everything. And it was her only, her only visit home. We had thought that maybe she would come, that she would be able to come home at some point and live with me. And because my house would be easier accessible than my parents. Mm. So we had thought that she might be able to do that at some point. But no doctor was really giving us a, any expectations of what to expect, what they thought might happen, how much she might recover. Nobody would tell us that. And I'm sure they didn't really know all the way. And I'm sure they didn't want to squash our hope because we still had some hope. But she did never get better than that. Um... Sunnyview up in Schenectady had finally decided that they couldn't do anything else for rehab with her because she really, she had no mobility and she could only talk in a whisper 
and then she started having all of the seizures, so she was really on some heavy-duty drugs, so she really didn't have much function at all. They decided to send her to a place down in Kingston that was um, that had a traumatic brain injury unit there. So this is over, um, is this an hour from your house at this point? This point was about an hour. Yeah. So she moved down there, and it was this beautiful facility, but they just weren't the right place for my mom. They didn't, I don't think they had enough staff. They had a schedule on her wall of all these different therapies she was supposed to be at, and if you looked at the wall, you'd be like, okay, it's Tuesday morning. She's supposed to be in physical therapy down in this room but she was still in her bed and hadn't even gotten up. They hadn't gotten her up or gotten her cleaned or dressed. And she started to go downhill very badly there. She she was not being taken care of properly. She was not being bathed properly. And when she started not feeling well, she started pointing to her head and complaining, kind of whining. And she kept pointing to her head, and we had said that, and they hadn't done anything. They'd given her some Tylenol, and then the next day we were back, and she was still pointing at her head. And we had, you know, pretty much said, we really need her to see a doctor. If she hasn't seen one by tomorrow, we're going to call an ambulance to take her to the hospital. Yeah. And they ended up calling an ambulance and sending her to a hospital that evening, and she had encephalitis and water um, swelling on the brain, and she had to have emergency surgery again. So she was in Kingston Hospital for that, and there was a wonderful doctor there who really started, he, he talked to us a lot, and he explained more about her brain injury, more than we had known at this point, and more about expectations and how she was she'd already peaked we weren't going to get anything else oh did that squash your hope it was it was very very devastating but also there was some sort of a relief that we that at least we knew yeah yeah. And so her deficits at this point were she could whisper, she could not talk above a whisper, and her whisper was very garbled because she'd had a massive stroke. So if you've ever heard someone with a very bad stroke and they have that kind of garbled voice a little bit, mm. there's the garbled language, that was her, and it was out of whisper. Mm. And so she... It was very hard to understand her, what she knew. Now, she had no short-term memory at all at this point. I would go, and I would sit with her, and I could be there for three or four hours, and I could get up, and I could go to the bathroom, and someone else could stop in, and they would say, hey, have you had any visitors today? And she would be like, no. Mm. <laughs> You'd be like, what? You'd get a little frustrated and be like, okay, why am I here? And then I remembered at the very beginning of this when it first happened and she was in a coma, my dad and I made a pact. And we made a pact that every single day somebody 
would be wherever she was to check on her because she could not advocate for herself. So we did that no matter where she was. My dad and I, both still working, would go. One of us, one or the other. We wouldn't usually go the same day because we tried to spread out our time and make sure that somebody saw her every single day because she couldn't advocate for herself. So that was exhausting. Mm. It was exhausting when it was at Albany Med, and that was only 35 minutes away. It was exhausting when we were in Schenectady at Sunnyview, and it was about 50 minutes away. It was exhausting in Kingston when it was about an hour away. Then when she was in Kingston Hospital, the place in, that was uh, in Lake Katrine right near, right next to Kingston that had had her wouldn't take her back. They said they wouldn't take her back. And oh. so we had to find someplace else for her. And pretty much every place in New York State We'll take someone if they have a feeding tube or if they have half of their skull removed. But there are very few people, very few places that will take her or take anyone if they have both. So we finally found this little place, and I say we, the nice people at Kingston Hospital, found a little place, and it was a dive. It looked so run down, oh. and it was a state-run nursing facility down in Hyde Park. So, but they would take her. And my heart sank when we got there the first day. We followed the ambulance that brought her there, and my heart sunk. It was just so old-looking, and there was nothing nice about it. There wasn't anything pretty to look at. There was nothing. There was no landscaping. There were no walkways that were all trimmed and pretty. There was nothing. And it was a little bit, heartbreaking because it was in Hyde Park, which means it was 112 miles round trip. Oh. 112 miles, yes, round trip. Oh, I and, mean, that, how long does that take? Um, well, I had a Mustang. Um, <laughs> and, um, it took a little while. So I, you know... I had it down to, it was about an hour and a half one way. Cause you know, I mean, 112 miles is really only 66 miles one way. So, you know, some of them were country miles and some of them were highway miles, but it was about an hour and a half to an hour and 40 minutes. Oh uh, my way. gosh. Yeah. And, and this was and I, daily. We went every single day. Oh my gosh. Every single day. We missed two days for the entire eight and a half months that my mom was like this. That and is commitment. I just, it was commitment. I just have to say, one thing that our listeners might be thinking is you had revealed to us very generously that you and you would not have called you and your mom extraordinarily close. Your grandmother was someone who was a real, you know, strong maternal figure. Your mother was a lot of your life a little bit more distant. What is it that made you so loyal and loving? Um, the desire to have family. I think the importance of knowing that your family is yours no matter what. Mm. Um, I've always just had a strong commitment 
to family. My sister and I are very, very close, and I love her so much. But we never would have had that relationship if we both didn't understand the importance of family because we're very, very different people. Mm. When I went, I should tell you that when I was going through all of this with my mom, my sister was going through some very personal issues and really couldn't help in the same capacity that my father and I did. She Mm. just couldn't do it. And so it was not because she was being selfish. She Mm. was anything but that, but it just was not anything that she could do. She was the single breadwinner in her household in a family of five and she could not take away from that she was in a position that she didn't she had a job that she couldn't take that time off or be as flexible Hmm. my goodness my goodness so this was it, it what you're saying what you're saying makes sense you were representing your mother's children for her you yeah. were not just representing yourself. You were representing her children and the family. Yes. And I mean, my sister would go as much as she could, but it might only be once every 10 days. It just, she couldn't do it as often as we did. Mm. She didn't have any other source of income, and she was in a job position that she couldn't take time away. And I I understand how much love goes into allowing that to just be what it was rather than saying, you know, hey, uh, fair means equal. Because in this case, fair doesn't always mean equal. She needed you to, to, to do some of the heavy lifting because you had you had a little bit more ability to do that at that time. Yeah, it was always just a, you know, whoever can do it will do it. And, you know, I had a really good support system of friends who really helped me out a lot. My very best friend since the third grade is still my very best friend, and she would hand me a gift certificate to go get a pedicure and she would take my daughter and say, today you're taking the day off and we're going to go visit your mom. Mm. You know, she was just amazing. And I had another really good friend of mine who she would ride with me quite often back and forth to visit my mom just as support and as a friend and just to be there so I wasn't so lonely, so I could process things with her. And, I mean, these are friendships that you you would be lucky if you could find a friend half as good as either of these two people. Mm. You know, I mean, I have just been so blessed with so many people that helped me along the way. My work was phenomenal. I mean, you know, I would go into my office and there would be a bottle of wine on the desk or, you know, someone would have bought lunch for me and, you know, there was, or there was chocolate because you all know I could really be calmed down if you threw some chocolate at me sometimes. You know? <laughs> I mean, people were just good to me. They just were so good. And that's why when someone would say to me, 
well, how do you believe in God? Why are you still going to church? What do you, I don't understand this. And I would be like, well, how could I not be? God is all around me. I couldn't get through this without him. Yes. I couldn't get through this. This was way bigger than I was. Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I'm a control freak. I, I think I might have mentioned that before. I am take charge. I am that kind of person. But when you come against something that's so momentous, so huge, and, and you have zero control, somebody's got to have that control. So I just had to give it up to him. Oh, that's faith. You're describing, you are describing faith. That is beautiful. It is faith. It's not something you can see, and it's not something you can make someone understand, but you know it's there. And it's not cheap. It's not a cheap thing. It's not an, you know, not an easy, um, it, it doesn't always satisfy the way that um, something, a promise in your hands does, but it is, uh, it is a deep knowing within. And, and for those who feel it, no explanation is needed, as they say. And for those who've never felt it, no explanation would, would suffice very true mm. I you know you you can't make someone feel it or believe it but when you know it's there it's what gets you through amen amen oh my gosh yeah so you you had believe it or not for our listeners some people may be thinking about this right now but others may not I described you um, as an entrepreneur, you are a businesswoman who works with, um, you're a, you're a hairdresser and you, um, operate your own, um, haircutting business within, um, a salon. You are a, uh, the, the managing, um, partner in the salon and, and you, because of that, don't have a big safety net. You're an entrepreneur. You are your own businesswoman. So financial sacrifice was part of this. Well, that was the part that I really had to have a lot of faith in. Ooh! <laughs> because that was probably as overwhelming as the accident because... I mentioned that I was traveling 112 miles every other day for months on end. I was not working to the same capacity. Yes. I work off of commission. I'm a general manager of a salon, but I do work off of commission um, along with a smaller salary. But my main money that I earn is through commissions of what I do. So if I am not physically doing somebody's hair, I'm not earning an income. So I was taking off a lot of time. I was making sure I was available for every doctor's meeting, every therapy meeting, um, financial meetings for my father, um, doctor's appointments for my father, um, 
I just kind of had to take over trying to get my mother and my father situated in what was going to be the the new normal for them. And so I relied on my charge cards and oh. I created quite a bit of debt and I had to do that um, because there, in my eyes, there was no other choice. And it adds up quickly when you're driving that far and you are putting gas in and you are getting fast food or whatever. It is very, very hard to understand how quickly all of that adds up on a credit card. But I can tell you in the eight and a half months that my mom was incapacitated and not well and all of the traveling and whatnot that I did along with trying to financially juggle to make sure all of our bills were paid and we went from a two income household to a one income with a little bit of money, you know, second income household. Um, it was rough in eight and a half months. I created about $48,000 worth of credit card debt. 48,000. So, yeah. A problem. That was definitely a problem. And I would pay whatever bill I could. I would pay, you know, I always made sure our mortgage was paid and I always made sure our uh, utilities were paid. But it got harder and harder to make the payments on the credit cards because they were getting really out of control. And I didn't want to tell anybody because I had always been so proud of my stellar credit. I had always worked so hard from the time I was so young to make sure that I had good credit. And I had lectured my kids from the time they were born on the importance of good credit and how important it was and to not spend outside of your means and to make sure that your bills were covered, you know, to live inside your means and make sure that your bills were covered with the paychecks that you were taking in. And, and we always did that. Mm. And I always made sure that we had everything paid on time. Everything was taken care of. And, you know, we bought our house at 23 years old. We were very financially responsible. But we were living within our means, but not where there was a lot of excess. Yes. So what happened, it got really out of control pretty quickly because of all of the expenses. Mm. And I mean, even you don't think about things like this, but this was before GoFundMe and this was before, right? It, you know, did fundraisers like that. And even parking, you know, you're paying $5 a day in parking. You're paying, you know, at, at these hospitals that, you know, you were paying so much money 
and you were there all day, so you were eating hospital food, and you were paying for, you know, hospital food that was not even good, but it was overpriced. Right. I was paying for a babysitter, and I wasn't working. Right. daughter with me into intensive care because she was three um so you had all of these expenses that were just consuming they were absolutely consuming so it was definitely one of the lowest points of my life for that even alone and it was so embarrassing it was mortifying. I didn't want anybody to know. I was just so embarrassed. And I know that I shouldn't have been because I know that it was, I know there was a reason. It's not like I went out and bought fur coats and diamond rings and, you know, I didn't do that. But, you know, we are taught that credit is a part of who you are and that not having credit is you know, not good Mm. and leaves you as a second class citizen. So it was a very private battle. And I know that I'm talking about it now because I think sometimes it's hard to talk about when you're going through something like that. But when you come out on the other side, you're kind of proud that you're victorious. You get to be proud and you also are helping people right now. Sometimes I think there's more shame about money than almost anything else. You know, people carry horrible amounts of shame over, over money. And you're helping us to understand too. You know, one of the things I'm hearing about that really makes it I think really crystal clear for a lot of us who know that healthcare is expensive. We know this is talked about in our society so much and that our system doesn't quite work the way it needs to. And there's a lot of debate about it, but even just you saying to have your mother there meant parking every day, hospital food every day, a babysitter and no income to pay for the babysitter. I mean, these are the things that never mind all of the therapies your mom was receiving, which, you know, anybody who's in a nursing facility or a a hospital, thousands of dollars a day. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for you to just say just what happens to a family member, not even including the medical care, it's overwhelming. And, and it is, it's remarkable that you did, it took you years, but you found your way out of it. It took years and I refused to go bankrupt. I absolutely refused. I was like, nope, we're going to get out of this. We're going to buckle down. We did refinance our house and paid about $10,000 of it. And then I just started doubling my payments and adding a little more. And it took about eight years, but I did pay off all of that debt. And my credit score is now really good. It's not perfect. But it's in the green, and, if, you know, if you go and check your credit score, and it says I'm right below the excellent line now. So I feel like that's such a personal accomplishment. Big time. And that it's something to be so proud of because it could have been worse. And it, it won't really be long. Could have been. It... And, you know, I just didn't want to – I just didn't want to go bankrupt. I, that was – too scary for me, and I was like, 
everything was in arrears, but I did work through it and we did get out of it. It's amazing. It's it's so generous of you to share that because people need to hear that and you're sharing it so honestly and, and so beautifully. And both the, uh, we can feel the pain of it and the hope that comes from finding your way through. You know, one of the things that you've said to me that really stopped me in my tracks when you first were telling me this story is you called this experience, all that we're talking about, this pivotal, challenging, before the accident and after the accident is how life is now divided, experience. You described it as a gift. Can you talk to us about that? What what could you possibly mean that this experience was a gift in your life? Well, this experience has been such a gift in so many ways. One of the things that we didn't talk about in this interview was that right after my mother's accident, my father's doctor had told him that he had cancer, too. So I was given a double whammy in the beginning, and... There's no words I for that. that. There's no uh, words for that. Wow. I, I found that, you know, in the beginning, that was really a lot. It was overwhelming when we were trying to figure out what all that was about, and I was going to his doctor's appointments because he wanted to make sure I was at his doctor's appointments because he didn't always understand the medical lingo as well as I did. And I would write things down and I would ask questions and I would break things down and was able to communicate them to him in layman's terms. So I had started hanging out with my dad more and more because we needed each other to survive. We needed to lean on each other. When he was having a rough day and just couldn't do it anymore and would break down, I would lift him up and I would give him the strength and I would give him his to-do list of things he needed to do that day and just push him onward to give him strength to move forward. And when I felt like I was having a really bad day, he'd do the same thing for me. He'd be like, we're not going to wallow in self-pity. Come on. We got things to do. What's on your list today? And he would come over every morning for coffee. And we would discuss the day. And we would discuss what needed to be done. And maybe what the doctors had said or whatever the other person had seen the day before. Whatever was going on with my mom. We would discuss that. We would figure out, you know, our, our plan of attack together. Mm. If my father and I had gone to the hospital that day and my mom had a bleed out on the brain and was not in that 10% to survive that surgery, if she had just died, we would have made plans had a wake, had a funeral, and we would have gone back to our separate lives. Mm. And so when I say what happened, I would never change how it happened. I believe that everything happens for a reason. 
And I'm pretty certain it wasn't to make me financially struggle. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty certain that if God was thinking this was going to happen for a reason, it was probably so that my father and I could develop this relationship that's unbreakable now. Tammy, that's so beautiful. And God knew that neither one of us could get through it by ourselves Mm. but we could get through it together oh that's so beautiful there were a lot of little gifts along the way you know like I said about my friends and all of the help I received but truthfully the gift was in getting my father I lost my mother but I gained my father and you know that I just want to pause with how beautiful what you're sharing is. And, and I'm also struck that you were a grandma's girl and, and mom and dad were important to you, but not the same as grandma. But in the end, you've got an unbreakable bond with your father. You got to hear your mother tell you that she loved you before the most pivotal time in everyone's life. And you got to be by her side as she passed to the next life. You were there. I was, and family is really important to me. And I have no regrets. Mm. I absolutely have no regrets. If it was going to happen, this is the way that it needed to happen in order to change the trajectory of my life, in order to change the trajectory of my father's life. I I actually should take that back. I do have a couple of regrets. And one of the regrets is that I do wish I had been there a little bit more for my sons because I know they were going through it too. Mm. They didn't really show me that they needed more and I really didn't have more to give at the time. Mm. But I'm at with that because I've talked to them and I have experienced explained where my train of thought was and where my mind was and and I think that it's impossible to be the perfect parent and I think it's impossible to be the perfect anything but I do know or at least I hope I know that my children know that I tried my hardest to be as much as I could for everybody at the same time yes yes well, and you know what else? You've you've given them something so valuable in that you've shown them by example at a young age, it's never too late to be able to change the trajectory of your life. Like you said, you changed the trajectory of your relationships. You changed the trajectory of how you demonstrated what matters most to you. It's powerful. It's powerful. And I'm guessing it has changed the way you handle challenges. I mean, we're all going through a challenge right now. We're in the middle of big cultural upheaval and we're going through a pandemic and there's a lot of economic insecurity. We've gone from from a really bad crash back in March to now we've recovered, but we, you know, we're we're hearing as we're recording this now, colleges are back in session and a lot of them are closing because coronavirus seems to be spreading again. And I'm just wondering, how are you finding that you handle challenges differently now because of that pivotal time? Um, 
I think I'm a little bit cautious with money. Ah. <laughs> I, definitely, you know, I definitely have learned that, you know, I don't want to be in the same position again. I've worked so hard to get out of that. I feel like everything is temporary. And I feel like I try not to focus on how overwhelming things are because I know that it's only temporary. I mean, sometimes things do become a little bit much, but I do try to wean out the things that are going to still be with me a year from now or five years from now versus what's going to be gone or gone within the next week or two or gone within a month that it won't stress me out anymore. So I would say probably just trying to wean out all the little things that are might be nagging at you right now but aren't going to be important, pivotal parts of your life. Mm. Powerful. They might be, they're nagging for now but don't make them more than they are. Right. It's just the clutter that's in with the big stuff. Clutter. Just get rid of clutter. That's a good word. I've never heard it called that before, but you're exactly right. Just like clutter in our house uh, congests our living, so does it with uh, when we, we, we let our challenges get cluttered, the big with the small. Get rid of the small little cluttery challenges. No knick-knack challenges. Exactly. Ah. Uh, you have, you've told us that everything, you're very clear that everything happens for a reason. And so you have experienced this acceptance that allows you to, to face life. What, what do you think, looking back, is the key that helped you endure these, it was, it was nine months, correct? Was it nine months that you were going Just through under this? under nine months, eight and a half, yeah. How, what's the key to enduring what, what we can't prepare for? How do you endure? Never lose faith. Mm. Always know that there's something out there greater than you or I. And I feel like I've told so many people this when they've questioned how I survived. Just always know that there's something greater than you or I and that it's not just you being alone dealing with this. Mm. You know, give it up to a greater being. If you can't handle it yourself, don't be afraid to give it up to a greater being. Mm-hmm. I, it's so, so beautiful. You know, it reminds me of what the 12-step uh, the community refers to as uh, the higher power. You know, I can't do this. I surrender. I surrender. I've come to accept that God alone can solve this. And I, I think that's powerful. You've been so generous. We've been speaking now for for ninety minutes, and so I. I'm sorry. I love it. No, I love it. I love it. I just want to value your time, and I maybe just one more question, which is: as we stand now with the challenges that we're all facing, what are your best hopes for the future right now? When we get through this pandemic and we we live into the new normal of whatever that's like, what what are your best hopes for life ahead? Well, I think my best hopes are that my children love life as much as I do, that they appreciate life as much as I do, 
no matter what that's going to be in these uncertain times, I hope that they just understand how valuable it is and how you can make the best of it in any situation. During all of this that I went through with my mother, I still had some fun times. I still had a sense of humor. Mm. I still enjoyed other things Mm. and appreciated the little things. Because if you go forward with a positive attitude and enjoy the good things and just try to get the negative clutter out of your mind, Mm. I think you're going to live a very fulfilling life. You know what's so uplifting about that is you're living in the same world we are and you're experiencing the same hardships as we've all heard and some hardships some of us have never experienced and maybe never will, we hope. But you are living in this. You're able, because you've learned to appreciate life differently, you're able to live in in almost a different reality than, than a lot of others and definitely different than you were living in before. Absolutely. It's funny because before this happened, I had a lot of fear. I lived life a little bit in fear. And you would think after seeing something so catastrophic happen that I would be even more fearful. Like, see, I was right. This is what could happen. Right. That's not how it works. I feel like, well, I've lived through something so catastrophic and made it out okay to the other side. So that's it. I'm okay. And I know that I have the endurance to get through. Not that I hope I have to. Yes. But I that I can. Oh, those are, those are such beautiful words. I hope I don't have to, but sh- should I have to? I know I can. So, you know, I'd like to just turn to the listeners for a second and ask you to, to just pause and close your eyes if it's helpful. And let's savor this conversation. We're told by neuroscientists that in order to hold on to something really valuable that we hear and insight, we need to savor it, hold it against our our mind and heart for 15 seconds. So I'd like to just ask, what did you hear in this episode that really spoke to you? What was it that you really needed and that is going to go forward with you? How might you be able to live a different kind of reality of life without having to change anything other than your attitude and the way you view the value of each day. How did you react to hearing Tammy say that it's never too late to change the trajectory of your life, to change the trajectory of your relationship with maybe a dad you used to have struggles with or a mom who withheld affection or or words of affirmation? How did you gain strength from hearing how she faced the impossible? How did you feel hearing that it is possible to get out of financial ruin one step at a time? And who was it that you found yourself thinking about? Is there a relative a loved one, someone in your family that 
you have a relationship with that you'd like to improve and you heard something in this conversation that makes you want to take a step in that direction. Tammy Martin, you've been such a gift to us and opening your life to us this way and sharing your stories is just something that will enrich us not only today, but for a long time ahead. So I want to thank you so much. And I promise you that, uh, that you will be in our minds and hearts as we go forward. Thank you. Thank you. And we had this conversation. Likewise, so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you for being a part of it too. May God bless you always.